Welcome to the Heavy Hole. It's Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. Getting in before both of you slow pokes. Wow. What's going on over there? I was posting my status on DoorDash. <laughs> what? We, this week we hate cold opens. <laughs> this is all official. Yeah, yeah. So who are you? What's going on? I'm Justin. How you what, doing? Is that your username on DoorDash? Check it out. Underscore Justin. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and you over there? Is that a celery soda? I'm Tom, I don't know. I have nothing. Oh yeah. I, I'm just here. I produce the show. Yeah. And I uh, salute you, boys. That's good. Good morning to you. It's an early one today. Huh? It's very early. We're yeah. recording this. Early enough where you could go fishing with a nice one and a half ounce hot mouth bucktail from Fishgood. So many other sizes. Handmade bucktail jigs and available in all different types of sizes, not just that one. At Fishgood NY on Instagram, manufactured on Long Island, New York. 1988 Fishgood. Fishgood, want a one ounce? Do you need to scale down from that one and a half ounce? Are you looking for that prim little fish that can't handle a one and a half ounce? Get yourself a one ounce hot mouth bucktail. Handmade bucktail jig. Fishgood at Fishgood and Y Artifacts in Long Island, New York. Thank you to our sponsor, Fishgood. Man, what a great sponsor. I, I got to say, uh, last week when you were listening to this episode, I didn't fish. And now, that's all I do. Tell me yeah. about it. How yeah. was your weekend? How was casting your fishing? Casting off. <laughs> I'm casting. That's all I do. Dude. I, I really don't know the terms yet, so I walk You're, onto the sand. Yeah, okay, give it a go. You attached know. to rocks. Okay. Look for those fish there you I was, go i was gonna say there's no couch involved that's a whole nope. different video that i hope you don't i'm, I'm look standing for. up yeah. yeah this is not the casting couch oh i boy. see what you've done there yeah. ah. uh-huh. that's good get You're, him out of the you, toilet you have the first thing to- totally right because when you stand and look at the water you want to see the fish you want to fish where there's no fish that's that's stupid guys come on i mean come on who's just gonna cast out into some water i want to see him playing around out there fish good you know, another thing I can see when I stand out in the murky waters of Long Island Shore, New York City. And our guest tonight, Nick Didkowski, has uh, lived and worked and created music out of New York City and the surrounding area for most of his life. He's going to tell us all about it tonight, including his work with his son, Leo, in the band Vomit Fist, which you may be familiar with. Local call, huh? Yeah, just the two cans with the string. We'll do it. All right, two cans. Big Will from Heavy Hole Podcast here with a quick disclaimer that Nick Ditkovsky asked me to add before the interview. So I'm going to read word for word this paragraph in the message that he uh, sent after the interview was recorded. Early in the interview, I described my parents' rollicking Russian friends singing folk songs with my mom. It was a really fun memory, but I think painting a picture of happy partying Russians right now might need a modifier so it doesn't come across as flip. I would like your listeners to know these were people who fled an authoritarian Soviet Union and came to the USA to start new lives. They would no doubt be enraged and horrified to witness Putin's unprovoked and unjust war on their brothers and sisters in the Ukraine today. Hey. 
This is Big Will from Heavy Old Podcast, and I'm here with today's guest, Nick Didkowski, uh, accomplished and prolific guitarist from many different acts, including Vomit Fist and Dr. Nerve. How are you, sir? Good, man. How are you doing? Really happy to be here. Very well. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on the show, Nick. Glad we could work this out finally, man. Yeah, well, man. Welcome aboard. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, yeah, it's like... Uh... The, the guard this is like playing the garden for me like <laughs> heavy hole is, is like the top top of the cream of the crop here well i appreciate the compliment i, I don't know that you've played the garden but we know you've been on quite a few stages <laughs> in so, my imagination <laughs> you've been on in quite my a, imagination quite a few stages though so we'll take that compliment man but um you know like i mentioned i didn't say i didn't say which garden Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true, man. That's true. Well, you could come play the vegetable garden this summer out here in Long Island, man. Um, maybe we'll do a little experiment, see how things grow. But bef- but until then, I mentioned Dr. Nerve. I mentioned Vomit Fist. Um, our listeners may be familiar with one or the other or both or other projects you've been involved in. But let's go all the way back like I normally do. I'm going to ask if you're from a particularly musical family. And we will give a quick shout out to your son, Leo. Um, who, yeah. who I, I do intend to give his own episode one day in the future. Um, but, but so, so in terms of a musical family, let's go, let's go backwards. We know that you have a musical son, but are there musicians, uh, in your family predating yourself or maybe people in your upbringing that steered you towards playing music, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I never actually heard my dad play, but reportedly like an early childhood memory was that my, my mom told me that he used to play piano. Uh, he grew up in Latvia, so he used to actually play piano on on like the radio. I, I don't know what that would have been all about, huh. but um, he was like deep into classical piano. And um, he was he was sort of so deep into it, which is kind of unfortunate. Like his attitude was like if he couldn't keep up the chops, he wouldn't play. So I never actually heard him play like, you know, life took over and, you know, World War Two and immigrating to the you know United States and stuff like that. Like life interfered with uh, his musical thing, and um, <clears throat> so I never actually heard him play piano. So there's this like weird little there's this little part of my DNA, you know, that that um, uh, some kind of a I don't I don't fully you know I don't really support it. I like I wish he had played just for fun. But there is like there's like a real like threshold of um, got to do it rightness, you know, that that I got from him where uh, where he really like insisted on doing, you know, if you're going to do something, you got to like really do it right. And I think it took it a little too far, but um, that's my dad and and my grandmother on my mom's side. I remember she always played piano um, and she would really talk about it. She would like she'd be playing some Bach and then she would like take us aside and show us like how, you know, she like slow it down expressively and like speed it up and play a little quieter here and play a little bit faster and a little louder here and stuff like that. And um, I I think she kind of, um, you know, slowed it down when it got hard, (laughs) but, but she called it expressive uh, interpretation (laughs) But I told, but I remember like, you know, like being three years old, four years old, sitting next to your grandmother and having her like just talk openly about like tempo and expression and stuff like that as you're seeing her hands move across the keyboard. That was that's pretty, you know, profound. But uh, I got to say the 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 most striking uh, 
influence on me was my mother who at, I don't know how old she would have been, but it was like, I would have been like eight, nine years old. She just out of the blue decided to learn how to play guitar. And, um, and, and that's, that's significant because I think like children are, are, are born into a world where our parents are already experts somehow magically, like, you know, mom and dad know how to drive cars, you know, they know how to like pay rent and get groceries and do all this complex adult <laughs> stuff. You never see them starting out in anything. Yeah. So, so she, um, she wanted to learn how to play guitar to, um, entertain friends. They, they had these, um, these amazing parties where all these Russian friends would come over and, and they'd be just like, I don't know. It's like those parties got intense, man, with the vodka and all that stuff. And so she wanted to like entertain them with uh, some Russian folk songs, but she had to learn how to play guitar first. So there was this TV show called Laura Weber Folk Guitar with Laura Weber, and was on once a week. And you had to tune in, you know, like no YouTube. It's like 7 p.m. on Sunday night. Your TV had to be on, and you had a half hour to like learn a couple new chords and learn a couple new songs and learn a couple new strums and, uh, and like practice it, you know, and then the next week there'd be like new chords and new songs and stuff. So I saw her go through that whole process, like seeing my mother going from a, from a beginner to like intermediate to fairly accomplished over the course of a year. It was like super inspiring. So a year after she did that, I, picked up the guitar so it's absolutely a direct handoff for my mom to me like I I learned the same tunes that she did you know I went through the same struggles of like how do you get the d chord and how do you get the f chord and all that stuff and um and and it's truly because of her just um you know uh what an attitude man you know it's like I think I could do this you know get a guitar learn how to play it and entertain my friends like that's pretty awesome Wow, that there's a lot there. So yeah. now, well, so I take it then guitar was your first instrument, the way you just described it. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I, I guess I started when I was around nine years old, maybe maybe ten years old, and um, and my first like, you know, my favorite like my first rock star, my pop's first pop star was Donovan, and. Uh, Mellow, so mellow get, yellow. Yeah. 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 So you would get, you, you could get these, uh, you know, get these songbooks and, um, and, and learn the chords from there and, you know, play along and then, you know, get together with like whatever friend, you know, was in eighth grade who also plays guitar and like, just, you know, you know how it is when, when you're a kid, you're sort of like trying to find your way. And um, yeah. So that first guitar, you know, the strings were about a mile off the fretboard, steel strings, really hard to play. And uh, then I wished for an electric guitar and I, and I, uh, I got an electric guitar when I was I guess, like seventh grade or something like that. And uh, that, that was a significant, significant moment for me. Okay. So, well, there, there's a lot I want to get into with the first guitar and the early guitar moments there, but I, there's something that occurred. I want to ask this then. Your father, you don't know your father. You never heard your father play piano in, in person, but he's got that history right. there. 
when you're uh, when you're like old enough to actually remember it, you know, you're not a teenager yet, but you're a young kid. Mom picks up the guitar. You you have this profound experience of watching her play guitar, and then you pick up the guitar. In any of that time, like, what's your dad's attitude? Is he dismissive of it? Is he encouraging of it? Is he you know? Is he um, you said he was kind of like strict with with learning the the, the proper way to, to go about it. Like him yeah. having kind of, I guess you could say, retired from playing music. What was his relationship with that? That's a really good question, and and I, I have very clear memories of him just being totally into it. Hmm. And he he was supportive of of her, and and there'd be these sort of family. Um, uh, uh, what do you even say? Like events, like, 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 uh, buzzes going on where like, I remember when she was trying to learn the F chord and the F chord was really hard for a beginner. Cause it was the first chord where you had to hold two strings down with the same finger. So it took a lot of strength and it was like, you know, she was frustrated and never going to learn this F chord. And I remember my dad, like, taking the challenge. It's like, I wonder if I can get that F chord, you know? So I remember him picking it up and kind of saying like, I think I got the F chord. <laughs> so, so everyone was sort of on board, like who's going to get that F chord, you know? Okay. So I, I think because it was, um, I think two things. One is no one made him play the guitar, you know, when my mom was doing it and his folks definitely made him play piano when he was a kid. So there might be, it might be a mix of like rebellion of like, you know, the, the minute I don't have to do this piano thing anymore, I'm, I'm never touching this freaking thing again, you know, because I'm not really sure how much he enjoyed it. I'm sure he was very good at it because he was good at everything he did. Um, but I think it was also a matter of like, you know, since, since I walk, you know, <laughs> the next time I see a piano, it's going to be someone else playing it. I'm never going to touch that thing again. But there was no, there was nothing charged around the guitar. So it's like, all right, my my wife is learning to play guitar. This is really cool. You're like I can I can try this crazy chord out. It's like there's no pressure. You know, he's just kind of having fun with it. No commitment. And uh, I think that's a really, I think that's what kind of loosened him up. Okay, fair enough. And um, I got to ask you this too because you're talking about. Um, uh, getting into guitar, you mentioned Donovan. Here's something that I think also maybe comes in, or correct me if I'm wrong, the 1969 album Pretties for You by Alice Cooper. What's your relationship there? Oh, my God. That record is, uh, yeah, it's definitely my favorite Alice Cooper record. But I didn't discover that until I was like, well, I discovered it when I was in high school. So that would have been, you know, I became an Alice Cooper fan like when I was uh, maybe a, a sophomore in high school. So that would have been, a, you know, a couple of years after this period that we're discussing where I'm learning to play guitar and stuff. Okay. And um, okay. so my first Alice Cooper record was uh, Love It to Death. And I bought it based on the picture or the photo on the back of that record, man. That is like the best freaking rock and roll band photo in the history of the world man <laughs> so so i i remember listening to love it to death and just being so so deep into it and then you know branching out from there getting killer and billion dollar babies and all that stuff and getting pretties for you but like it just did not track I, it's like what is this it, it's not they're not singing about 
dead babies or you know it's not it's not like catchy rock tunes it's it's like weird music like what what is this shit you know and so i just set it aside and a few years later but i kind of kept coming back to it every so often it's like what is this record you know i got to listen to it again and it's really lo-fi so you gotta you know it sounds like a mystery like you're kind of like unearthing something you, know, you try to hear hear deeper inside it and so um over time it you know, as as a hardcore Alice Cooper fan, uh, I found that the record I would just sort of come back to again and again and hear it with new ears, like again and again, was Pretties for You. And, and just because it's such a, it's so out there. It's closer to like Sid Barrett era, um, Pink Floyd than it is to, you know, Love It to Death or Killer or billion dollar babies or anything like that so um so you know if we just wanted to jump like forward a bunch of decades um i felt so uh entranced i'm so into that record i i i I had this fantasy it's like i would love to hear that someone play these tunes live you know any night of the week you can go out and hear you can hear someone doing 18 or schools out right but you're never going to hear, you're never going to hear pretties for you. And, uh, and I figured like this, no one's, no one's going to do this unless I do it. So I put a band together when I had this residency at John Zorn's um, stone. And uh, I, I put this band together and, and uh, learned it. I learned every freaking lick on that record and everyone in the band learned their parts. And, and, uh, and we did it. It was amazing. Dennis Dunaway, joined us for some encores and neil smith was there and uh cindy smith dunaway um came and like she made me this beautiful shirt with the pretties for you art on it it was amazing and and honestly it was like and and people like this guy came from sweden to see it like it was insane like we dennis made this joke there were more people there were more people at our show (laughs) doing to come see pretties for you than than ever came to see alice cooper during the pretties for you era well so I took hey. that. <laughs> that's 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 the cult era you know <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly so i had to give myself this gift you know it's like if i'm ever going to hear this record loud and you know at rock volumes like raging the way it deserves to it's like i, I gotta put a band together myself to do it so so i did Okay, man. Well, that's that's obviously why I asked because um of the 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 performance of that album um uh, during your residency at the Stone in New York City. That was 2015, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So or I'm gonna trust. I I think you're right. Yeah, yeah I, I I got everything <laughs> with the internet. I, yeah, I I have my notes here. So well, yeah, be, before yeah. we we before we skip too far ahead, then like you said, you got into that a little yeah. bit um later on in school. Here's what I want to know. How how soon is it evident that guitar isn't just a hobby for you? How how are you participating in in what your high school's equivalent of like um extracurricular musical you know jazz band things of that nature very early on or I never I never did do that no like when I was in seventh grade eighth grade um you know I would get together with like one other guy to like play guitar and I actually remember my first gig it was it was at a seventh grade dance and uh there was this local it was also probably the first time i heard loud electric guitar was at was at these dances 
and um, there was like this local guy with a with a some kind of stack and his friend who played drums. And uh, my friend Vance and I, we, we were like the only two electric guitarists in town, maybe one other guy. And um, they, uh, I don't know how this happened, but they wanted us to do like a short set. And um, man, I would love to know what that sounded like. It must have been so out there. We, we, we just like tuned our, we, we tuned our strings to like open E so you could just like move your finger up and down the frets and you always get a major chord, you know? And then the other guy would do leads and, and the leads were all on one string above the 12th fret while the other guy's doing these chords. And we would just kind of do it until we stopped, you know, and then we would do another one. And, but I remember looking out, you know, whenever we dared to gaze up from our shoes and just seeing this like wall of our peers, like seventh grader, and eighth grade boys and girls just like staring at you like freaking zombies. And it's like, wow, this is like, this is crazy. This is, this, this is so intense. So that was like my first gig. And in high school, um, I got, I got into a band in, in my freshman year. And, um, so that was like two electric guitars, uh, keyboards and drums and uh and i guess this is a good time just sort of paint the paint a picture of the era there because this was kind of like like i remember when there was no metal you know by the time i was in high school uh there was you know the first you know 21st century schizoid man on the first uh king crimson record had hit you know and and the first sabbath record was out and and uh you know i remember this one summer like listening to master of reality like incessantly you know that that's like a good summer for a, a young teenager when that when that record was new but like the like if if you had a band back then you might be able to you know adequately cover the guitar adequately cover the bass adequately cover the the, the the drums but vocals man that was so hard like if you know deep purple we that was the band we wanted to be you know made in japan those those marshals on that on that album cover that's the band we wanted to be but who are you going to get to sing like ian gillen man mm. nobody and or or if you wanted to do sabbath like who's going to sing like ozzy osbourne like nobody zeppelin who's going to sing like robert plant nobody queen forget it so so you would you would it would be this really difficult your set list wasn't built on the tunes you wanted to do your set list was based on the tunes you wanted to do that someone could sort of sing so so that was the scene in high school you know like highly motivated but like you know, can anyone do a falsetto? Like, can we do the ocean by Zeppelin? You know, can mm. anyone muster a decent Alice Cooper? Like, can we do, you know, billion dollar babies? And, uh, and that was, and that was, you know, I probably talk about this again later when I talk about Dr. Nerve, which is an instrumental group, you know, cause vocals, man, that was, it was an era where the aesthetics of vocals was you know the the it was very narrow very virtuosic like very um very pitched you know and uh 
and it and and it was a, it was a major issue. So this is a real long answer to your question, but like that that was the that was the um, environment uh, that I surrounded myself in in high school. I didn't do any like band classes or anything like that. It was all it was mm-hmm. all like you know jamming with friends, putting a band together, and like trying to do a trying to you know get a gig at some dance or some VFW hall or something like that. That that seventh grade dance sounds sounds crazy. <laughs> it was it was but crazy. I don't know yeah. if the seventh graders were ready for that yet. But yeah, well we weren't. We definitely weren't, man. I, I remember my ear hurting from my own leads because I didn't know how to like control my volume. You know, <laughs> I was just standing next to that guitar amp like playing these high notes <laughs> above the twelfth fret on that one string right into my right ear you know i that was that was I, I i would love i would kill to get a recording of that i it must have been out so out well the and another thing you were talking about with the vocals and how you kind of had to have a vocalist that could replicate um you know robert plant or ozzy osbourne or ian gillen depending what was going what you know it's it kind of makes me think of the the phrase um uh necessity is the mother of invention with death metal vocals later on because you know that the death metal generation you could be a little bit more static with the tone the tone of voice your singer had you know and and when people were experimenting with that but but here's here's something now because totally totally. you kind of gave me a, a a good segue here because you brought up dr nerve the band that if i'm not mistaken you you were you're you're basically the founder of from 1983 on right yeah. Yep. 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 I was reviewing um, a, a lot of different material from Doctor Nerve today, and and a question that I wrote down um, was with, while composing, particularly the horn sections and the um, s- some of the parts where the horns are are doing more of a lead t- uh, type of type of uh, um, arrangement. Are they thought of maybe as this static, emotive lead that is taking the place of what vocals would normally be doing in a metal or a hardcore punk band? Because there are parts where the horns are doing a very harmonic, what you would expect of a horn section um, in conventional music. But then there's parts where they're kind of doing this more spa- like spazzed out. What maybe some of the more some of the listeners of Heavy Hole might maybe associate with a, a band like Naked City or something, for instance. Um, yeah. Can you compare that to vocals then? Totally, man. You, you you just landed like that's bullseye. That is absolute bullseye. That that was that was the liberation of uh, of of using horns. It, I I wasn't even fully aware of it. Like when I when I first did it, I I was at the Creative Music Studio, and um, which is a whole other whole other story. Uh, it was this this music school up near Woodstock, New York, in. Uh, in a hunting lodge out in the woods. Um, and, and there were a lot of players from a lot of jazz players, some rock players like world music and, and a lot of influences. So there were a lot of horn, a lot of horn players. And, um, and, uh, and, and like, I had already seen like, after spending a year in New York, there was this one band called, um, uh noise are us and um jim made us on guitar and and uh and this killer horn section and that kind of planted a seed in my mind about like heavy electric rock grooves with like melodies getting punched out by the horns they they had a singer but 
that was like dancing around in my mind. And when I went to the creative music studio and I started to write pieces for the people there, it, it was like a, a revelation. It's like, man, I, I can, I can have these, I can do these, I can have the horns function like vocals. They can do solos. They can do noise. They can do textures. They can do harmonies. It's like, Oh my God, I don't need a singer. You know, it's like, plus they can do just crazy shit, you know, and, and I can write just crazy shit. And, uh, and, and have these guys play it, you know, because they're, they're all really good players. They could all, you know, read music. And it was incredibly liberating to have an instrumental band. And it's, it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't until I kind of digested it, thinking about it. It's like, why does this feel so good? It's like, oh, yeah, man, because because no one could sing like Ian Gillen when I was a kid, you know? And now I got a horn. I've got a soprano sax player who can play notes higher than Ian Gillen. I've got a bass clarinet player who can play notes lower than the lowest vocalist you ever heard. You know, it's, it's like the range and the possibilities. So liberating. So, well, let me ask you this then, because we talked a lot about rock music um, and, 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 uh, you know, that, 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 form of guitar based music but when we start talking about horns what's your background in terms of jazz because you have participated in a lot of um like improvisation based music and things like that while you know while donovan and alice cooper were in your record player as a kid when does jazz and more kind of free form type of music come into the picture for you so i i think um so i'm i'm not a jazz player at all like i could not hang with with anyone that like flipped open the real book and, you know, wanted to run some charts, you know, um, I, I would just embarrass myself, but as far, but free improv, I have a, I have a very strong connection to, um, to that sort of, uh, world or I wouldn't even call it a genre, just like attitude. Let's just say attitude. Um, so I, I think that would be, um, if you check out like, um, players like Derek Bailey uh, on guitar and, and uh, like the really free players um, or Fred Frith, some of the tabletop electric guitar stuff that he would do. And um, some of the um, improv that came out of uh, England with the, with the company guys uh, there was, there was a lot of freedom in it where really like, getting sounds out of your instrument, you know, like confronting your instrument and, and, and listening super carefully to what everyone else is doing and, and making consequential sounds that may or may not be pitched. There's no, like, there's no chords, there's no rhythm. It's, it's all about response and listening and, you know, reactions and, and building something together, uh, you know, in, in real time. That's, that's an area of music that I, I'm really, really passionate about. Um, and I guess I would have gotten turned on to that. Uh, oh, I know exactly. I know exactly what we got turned on to that. We got, we got turned on to that one summer um, when uh, we, we got turned on to other things too and, and pulled out our instruments and just, we would improvise like every night 
And it was a range of friends, like some guys that couldn't play any instruments, some guys that could, some guys that would just like bang on pots and pans, um, some guys that were just starting out on, on, uh, on bass or piano or whatever like that. And it, that was a revelation. Like we, we just discovered you could just make music just by going, you know, and and uh, I would I would record those. This was like junior year in high school. I would record them on this crappy little cassette recorder and then I would listen to them the next day. And uh, it was amazing. And we would give names to the tunes and I would like trim the things that I was doing. It's like, ah, I'm doing a little too much of this and I should try a little more of that. And then we dive into it again and then record it again and listen to it again. It was this amazing really consequential, uh, really consequential uh, summer of discovering free improvisation. That was, um, I haven't actually thought of that in a while. Thanks. Thanks for that question. But (laughs) so there was, there were always, that was, that was nuts, man. I, Jesus. Um, We, uh, I still have those cassettes somewhere. I'm I'm positive. I still got those cassettes somewhere. So, um, so there were these, you know, these these two worlds. Like I had, I, I had my foot in, like really interested in in sort of complex, composed, rocked out, um, grooving uh, music on the one hand. You know, that's like composed and rehearsed and 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 uh, and raging. And then and then this completely um, un unplanned um, aspect of of my creative life where, where you just, you, you just, you know, just improvise, improvise without conversation ahead of time, just like discover what the music wants to be. Yeah. So, well, and by the, just for the listeners quickly, most, a lot of the music and, and, and projects we're speaking about are available on Bandcamp uh, amongst um, other outlets uh, and also your your own um, label, if I got that right, that's p u n o s music dot com. Um, that's right. There's there's links right. links to to just about everything we're going to cover, and probably some stuff we we won't even get to tonight because there's a lot. Uh, but yeah. well, let yeah. me ask you this: something I kind of skipped over in the beginning. Um, are you are you from New York City, and have you always uh, lived in New York City? Uh, originally in the Bronx, I was born in the Bronx, and I lived there for. Um, uh, I went to public school there my kindergarten year and my first grade. And then uh, we moved to Connecticut where I, uh, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, and then, but my folks still had, a, um, my dad still worked in uh, New York. So he still had the apartment in New York. So we, in high school, I would like, we would come to, into New York, do our record shopping or whatever, you know, and nice. crash there and then come back to Connecticut. And then I moved back to New York um, right after college, like right around 1980, um, moved up to Woodstock for this creative music studio thing, uh, lived there for a couple of years and then moved back to New York in 1983. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, um, uh, to frame where all this is going on. And, uh, you mentioned coming back to New York city for like record shopping and stuff. So that gives some insight into the, the availability of music, um, and kind of, kind of, you know, like with, you know, New York city in that era, I'm sure you had access to a lot of the classic record stores people think of, and a whole world oh, yeah. of, of different music uh, out there, oh, right? Yeah. Free being and, and sounds, they were these two used record stores. So we, would we, we would take, we would park at my folks house in, 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 uh, the Bronx, we would take the, 
the train down to 8th Street and we would go to Free Being. We'd, we'd like just go through a lot of all that vinyl. Then we would go to Sounds, go through all that vinyl, like buy posters, like, you know, all this like bounty, you know, and, uh, and then like head back, you know, and like on the subway ride home, you're like looking at all these cool records that you s- spent, you know, just a dollar 99 on, you know, they're all these, all these awesome, awesome used records. It was just uh, a fantastic time. Those records stores, my God, they were, they were incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it, it seems, we're seems, we seem to be in an era now where, where record stores are coming back a little bit. The pandemic obviously was horrible for so many yep. businesses, but the vinyl was making a comeback and there were uh, quite yeah. a, quite a few out here on Long Island. I know. Um, oh, great. Yeah. I, I've, you know, there's a few in the city. Is Generation Records still around out there? Oh yeah. 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 yeah I just spent some yeah. money there around Christmas getting some great. stuff. <laughs> I love that place. That yeah. Place great. And, downtown music gallery is like a stalwart they've bruce galanter he's he's kept that place going for decades he's uh he's on monroe street that that's that that's a treasure trove that place so well so let me ask you this um because i know that you're if if i you know if you could call it a solo album if that's how you would categorize it but you released the album now i do this under your own name in 1982 yeah, uh, and if I got that right, you recorded that while at Brown University. You yeah. want you want to talk a little bit now, maybe just uh, obviously about that album and the recording of it. But could you lead us through a little bit now? At this point in your life, I guess your college age, how much are you honing in on music now after high school? Now I'm yeah, now I'm really getting deep deep into it because, um, uh, like I, I was dying to to do multi track recording, um. And it, it was not an era where you could have that, you know, at home. Um, so, but, but there was this electronic music class that you could take at Brown. They had a four track tape recorder and they had this ARP 2600 synthesizer. Nice. Um, and, and so I got to take that class and it was, um, it was also, it was a really fertile time because I, I was starting to, um, I had already started to uh, broaden like what I was interested in. So musically, so, um, you know, like the, the heavy rock of um, my roots, like, you know, Kiss, Queen, Alice Cooper, Zeppelin, Sabbath, like all that stuff, Crimson, that was still just like, you know, the blood boiling stuff that I was made of, but I was also getting into, um, you know, Brian Eno and, uh, you know, Sid Barrett era Floyd and, and, uh, experimental music, electronic music, uh, tape music, um, you know, uh, 20th century composers like, uh, Vares and, and, and stuff like that. And, and, and there was like this, um, explosion of really intense, uh, rock going on with bands um like perubu coming out and simultaneously i was discovering this whole rock and opposition movement that was that was um coming out of europe um which is a really really important probably the single most important musical movement in in my life it, it was uh it was this like fuck the record label attitude diy radical radical um uh 
music makers, um, bands in all these different countries like uh, Etron Fou in France and Henry Cow in England and uh, Stormy Six in, in, in Italy. And they built this network and they would support each other and they would put on shows and they would put on festivals and they would, you know, they would set up in a, in a public square, you know, set up a PA and like do a show and, and people would find out about it and they would call each other up and, 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 you know, fill, fill halls with this completely non-popular, non-commercial music. So, you know, those guys, so like all this stuff was flooding into my, into my, uh, into my sphere, you know, I'm exploring this and exploring that and I'm taking electronic music. So I got four, you know, it's four track tape deck and I'm into Perubu and learning how to do tape loops and distorted guitar. And I got all this like, you know, heavy, heavy music in my, in my DNA, you know? And so I'm, I'm starting to create stuff and, um, and I do that for like accumulated like two years, uh, two years worth of work, most of which, you know, doesn't really survive and I wouldn't really release. But there were there was a, a handful of tracks that was like, you know, what? I'm, I'm kind of proud of this. This is this is this is like this is something I'd rather I wouldn't mind someone else hearing. And um, then when I when I got out of college, I got myself I did get myself a um, multi-track tape recorder i bought it used from this record uh, recording studio um and i spent about uh six months uh doing more work and exploring more stuff and basically rounding out what would be that album so now i do this is probably about half stuff that i'd done as a student and about uh half the stuff that i'd done um after uh after getting out of school and uh I, I rediscovered the master tape uh, about a year ago and um, I, I couldn't believe it. It's like, I, I, I can't believe I, this thing, you know, and I borrowed a, a reel to reel tape recorder from my friend Ben and um, learned how to bake tapes to like dry it out. And I, I digitized it and, and released it and added a bunch of bonus tracks from that era. So it was a, time trip man wow. re-releasing that record was was crazy yeah yeah and people can hear that on Bandcamp, like i mentioned before yeah. now you yeah. you started talking about your your um forays into electronic music and tape loops uh we're jumping around but this might be a good a good point where i want to bring up um your writing music in in code um i believe that starts around 88 on the commodore omega Oh yeah! Wow, man, you did your research. I, I I sure did, man, and 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 good. Yeah, good. and well, here's the thing, because I'm I did my research, but I didn't do I didn't I couldn't go deep enough. I want you to try to explain in layman terms, um, briefly as best you could for myself and for the listeners, exactly yeah. what it meant to be using HMSL to write music and code on a Commodore Amiga in the late '80s. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So. I, uh, so the, the, the prelude to this, I, I had no real interest in doing computer music, um, except, um, my dad sent me this article 
from Scientific American about like knots or knot theory or something like that. And on the flip side of it, there was an article about um, game theory that I found really inspiring because it, it, it had all sorts of social overtones about people cooperating and competing at the same time. And so I wrote a letter to Pauline Oliveros, a composer, and I told her I was really inspired to write a piece of music that would um, address this issue of people cooperating and um, competing simultaneously and creating some kind of music out of that dynamic. And she said, um, you're probably talking about a computer music piece and it's probably a network piece. And you might want to call my friend Larry Polanski and ask him about uh, HMSL. And so, so I called him. I remember I called him from a payphone, like throwing quarters in as the <laughs> long distance call was like ticking out. And he said, yeah, HMSL will definitely let you do Like if you can think it, if you can, if you can describe it, if you can like come up with an idea and describe it sort of um, in a step-by-step way, then you'll be able to program it and HMSL will let you make music with it. And the Amiga is just a really great computer to do it. So it's like, thanks. I hung up and I decided to get myself an Amiga and I got HMSL. And I remember you asked for like a simple example. And I can tell you the very first computer music program I wrote, it was, um, it was just like maybe 10 lines of code. And it was um, just a, a series of instructions that that just went on forever. Like it, the program would just like keep on repeating itself. And all it would do is it would it would make up um, a frequency. It, it would play it, and then it would uh, calculate a new frequency that was some ratio uh, compared to the original one. So it'll. And, and, then, and it did that with four frequencies simultaneously. So you had these four tones with these beautiful um, harmonic uh, intervals just kind of being generated randomly. Hmm. And what was so striking to me was that I could like hit a button and sit back and listen to this thing unfold that I'd never heard before that was never going to repeat. It was, you know, it was random, but I could predict that it was always going to, you know, generate a certain kind of very beautiful kind of harmony. And, um, and it was like this autonomous agent. It was like just doing it on its own. It was like, I can't fucking believe this. This is, it, it was just like everything I'd done up to then. Like if I want to make a sound with my guitar, I got to hit it. You know, if if I got to if I want someone else to make music, I got to write the notes on a piece of paper and I got to hand it to them. You know, here. I can write a program and I can sit back and I can listen to this thing in this disembodied way. And it was just like philosophically really striking and and super exciting. And that was really was like the beginning of um, of my getting super excited about it's like, well, if I can do that. I can write a program that'll write a tune 
for my band or maybe just five seconds of a tune or like 20 seconds of a tune that I can then develop or just generate like rhythms or generate melodies. And then I can rework those rhythms and melodies. And that, that was really the inspiring moment, like seeing a machine do something on its own and listen to it and just have my mind blown. Huh? Wow, a lot there, man. Um, does that make sense? It it, 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 it does. It does. No, you, you definitely, you definitely, you definitely had it made uh, made it make sense to me um, okay, a little great. bit more than than I understood it uh, in the beginning. Okay, and um, I understand that you know over time you end up using Java uh, to to code music composition, and you're actually um, a Java music instructor at New York University uh, as of 2007. Yeah. 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 So, um, so the Amiga was my favorite computer. It was, it was just the coolest, coolest hobbyist machine. It it was, it had a, had a lot of personality, a lot of flexibility, but Commodore didn't really know how to, how to market it. And so there was always the struggle of seeing the Amiga kind of, uh, get more and more marginalized. Like people were using the Atari and then the Mac and like, the Amiga was really, um, by 1997, I finally had to admit it, you know, it's just like, <laughs> uh, no, this, this isn't going anywhere, man. There's no future to this Amiga. And it re- honestly became really hard for me to write another piece on the Amiga, knowing that, you know, the minute the hard drive dies on this thing, my, my platform's gone, you know? Mm. So, uh, so I, um, I, I developed like 10 years of tools on that thing. So um, right around that time, uh, the Java programming language hit my radar. And what was cool about Java was that it was not, um, it, you, you didn't commit to a particular hardware platform. The, the, the selling point of Java was that the same program written in Java would run on a Mac or on a Windows machine or a Linux box. So that felt really good to me. You know, I'd seen my favorite hardware um, go the way of the dinosaur, but here was a programming language that didn't care what hardware it was going to run on. I was like, Oh man, I, I could commit to that. You know, that, that actually sounds pretty, pretty great. So I, I did a few experiments and, and um, managed to, to uh, get something like HMSL running in Java and then I partnered with my friend Phil Burke, who was one of the HMSL creators, and we built um, Java music specification language, JMSL. So HMSL came first, and JMSL came after. So I use JMSL in my own composition, and um, and I teach it at 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 NYU, and it's just been uh, an amazing uh, creative journey. It's. Uh, Again, it's just like that idea, like if it's a general purpose programming language. So um, if you come up with this like totally crazy idea that you can describe in a program and you can think of a way to, um, you know, turn that into sound or into rhythm or into melodies or something like that, then then JMSL provides you with that platform. So I got like just crazy student work over the years. Uh, you know, people just doing just wildly creative, uh, wonderful stuff. And it's wow. been super rewarding to teach it and to use it. 
What now? Just out of curiosity, maybe if you if if you could describe an example, like what sort of application would this have? And maybe you're more. Um, commercial music, your more repetitive, like dance or hip hop uh, based music, um, some something like that. Uh, like, is is there maybe like a more simplistic application that that people could use that for? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, you can um, before JMSL will JMSL will do anything. You got to write Java. You know, you got to write you got to write some Java code. So it kind of chases. It'll kind of chase away people that want. Um, quick uh quick results like if you want quick quick results to like get stuff done um you know there's a lot of platforms out there that'll that'll do it like ableton live and and um you know these are wonderfully creative deep uh programming environments for music um jmsl really is for people that are on the fringe you know like Mm. um i've never i've never been all that you know, like none of my, I, I, I perform unpopular music, you know, so it should be, should be, should be no surprise that JMSL isn't, it wouldn't be your first call, you know? Um, that said, I, I did write a uh, pretty bitchin' groove machine in, in JMSL that I used in uh, a live performance at NYU that, uh, that was interactive and, um, came up with really killer grooves uh definitely in the like dance electronic music uh you know uh vein and um and that was that was like super that was that felt really great i like really enjoyed performing it and and um my collaborator really enjoyed singing with it and and i had musicians playing along with it so um you know that 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 felt like a pretty straight up grooving piece of electronic music, but um, it's also something that I had to spend a lot of time, you know, coding from scratch. So, it, it JMSL is really there for people that want that that want to do something that um, an off the shelf package just won't do. You know, you got some yeah. some whacked out idea and 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 you want to make music out of it huh. that you know jmsl is your is 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 the place you want to go well like like you said on the fringe i like that man that that's yeah a, it's <laughs> it's a good answer because it does it does explain um better in in you know layman's terms like like i like i said so um now there's some... yeah, can, can i give you a really beautiful short example of, of student work that, yeah, that just encapsulates this was like this was so so beautiful her her final project she had this theory that if her cousin who was learning how to touch type, if, if she could hear a note every time she hit a key on her keyboard, then, then she would gradually learn the melodies of, of, of common words. And then she would know if she like misspelled something. So she used JMSL to attach um, notes, you know, pitches to the, to the keyboard. And, and it really kind of worked like, you know, you would you would kind of learn what the word the sounded like and what the word and sound like and all these different kind of combinations. You know, the letter Q followed by the letter U is very common. You know, you made a mistake if you hit the letter Q followed by the letter E, you know, because it's like a new melody that you've never heard before. And it was just a beautiful proof, proof of concept of um, of how someone could just come up with a really fresh, unique idea um, 
perfect experimental music, right? You, you come up with the idea, you write the software for it, you test it, it works, it generates music and it has this like really cool real world application. That that's pretty amazing, actually. I, yeah, I never would have thought of something like that. That's yeah, it's beautiful. You, and you start like you start listening to words, you know, in a way you yeah. never listen to. It's like yeah, yeah, it's cool. Interesting. Okay, man. Um, all right, and I, you know, not to jump around too much, but there is a lot um, in your in your musical catalog and history. And I don't want to neglect your time in the Fred Firth uh, guitar quartet. Oh yeah, which we you know we're talking about the late '80s when you started um, working with with uh, uh, coding for music and that sort of thing. It was '89 yeah. that you first linked up with the Fred Firth um, guitar quartet, and if I'm not mistaken, your your work with Fred Firth goes back to when he appeared on a Doctor Nerve recording. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, so Fred um, was the one of the composers, and when I mentioned the rock and not rock and opposition movement. So Fred yes. um, was in a band called Henry Cow, which is probably one of the most important bands in that, in that uh, whole movement. So, and he was, Fred was a really important character in my life. Um, and so I, 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 I was, you know, following Henry, you know, all Henry Cow records, then later his art bear stuff. And he put out a record that really changed a lot of attitudes about solo guitar um, called guitar solos. And uh, <laughs> it almost none of the tunes sound like standard guitar. You check it out sometime. Um, a lot of extended techniques playing the strings with, um, you know, with, with edges of glass and putting clips on it and, and playing it, you know, with the guitar on the on on the table and like just really beautiful imaginative extended techniques of like extracting sounds out of the guitar but he could also freaking rock you know he's like killer 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 rock guitarist and great improviser and master composer so um and he had a band uh i remember when i first moved to moved back to new york he had this band called um massacre uh, with Bill Laswell on bass and mm -hmm. Fred Maher on drums. And Jesus Christ, man, seeing that band live was insane, like raging, heavy, 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 heavy noise, rocking, rocking band. So, um, but yeah, and he's also a really great uh, producer. So um, when Dr. Nerve put out, when I, when I was getting ready to record our second record, um, I just cold called Fred. Like he knew me from the scene anyway, like just as a fan, you know, I would come see, uh, see him play with massacre or, you know, whatever projects he was working with. Um, but he was like super approachable guy, you know? And, and uh, I, I remember just, just called him and said, you know, Dr. Nerves putting on our second record. And I really love the way you produced the Aksak Mabul record. And I really liked the way you did this other record. And like, would you consider producing this record? And he said, yes, on the spot. And uh, I remember the, the elation, like, holy shit. It's like, I can't believe it. Fred's going to produce a record. It's going to be insane. And he was great. He was just a killer, killer producer. Um, he didn't, he didn't change any of the compositions. He's not like, like producers kind of a really big word, you know, I think nowadays producer, can mean anything mm -hmm. from like 
you know, I'm a vocalist. I don't have any tunes. I need a producer. So the producer comes in and like accumulates songwriters and whatever and produces, you know, a record. Um, or it can mean, you know, someone who oversees the engineering uh, gets a certain kind of sound. Um, and that was sort of more like what, what Fred was doing. He was getting us in and out of the studio super efficiently, you know, got good tones for everybody really quick, like made really fast decisions, like super great coach on solos. Like, you know, that's the keeper. That's not the keeper. Like breathe differently, like try this. And then like, boom, 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 you know, just like keep keeping things moving like really fast. So that was an honor, man, getting, getting to play, getting him to produce. That was the armed observation. That was the second uh, Dr. Nerve record. And then like, uh, I don't remember exactly when, like a year or two later, he um, gave me a call and, and said he wanted to put a quartet together, an electric guitar quartet together, primarily to uh, record a definitive version of this suite that he wrote for electric guitar called the As Usual Dance. And um, of course I said, yes. And Mark Howell was in that group and René Lussier, a, a uh, guitarist from Quebec. Uh, was in that quartet. And um, so we got together primarily to, to do that piece, to record it. But I was a composer and I brought a piece and Rene was a composer. He brought a piece and Mark was a composer. He brought a piece. So suddenly we actually had a set, you know? So we did a show and uh, then we wrote more tunes. I mean, they did another show and then we started touring and it was just an extraordinary, it went on for like a good 10 years of uh, touring Europe and uh, doing festivals, getting out to Europe at least once or twice a year, doing, doing these tours and, and just growing and exploring. And it was just amazing. Had you toured with Dr. Nerve prior to that or with any other group, or was that your first experience uh, really traveling and and gigging out um, abroad? No, the first, the first tour was with Dr. Nerve. We did a, we did a short tour in Europe and um, rented a rented a van in uh, Luxembourg and uh, returned it with the side smashed in and the gas camp <laughs> missing and like, oh, my God. And, and we were toasted, man. And by the end of that, it's like <laughs> that was rough. That was a rough that was a rough tour. We drove all the way from the south of Germany to Rotterdam, like overnight in the snow and uh, got into a car accident in Rotterdam, spent the night at the police station trying to talk our way out of the insurance. Oh my God, that was freaking nuts. Ran out of gas on the Autobahn, which is illegal. Like no mercy, man. You can't run out of gas on the Autobahn. Um, and, and like walking, you know, walking three miles off the Autobahn to f- get gas and get it back to the car and like hobbling in. <laughs> hobbling. Oh my God. The way that van looked at the end of that tour, it was insane. We, we like, you know, it was like a cartoon when you just see like this thing, like bumping into the, into the rental returns. Wow. And, and this woman, I said, she, she took one look at it. She said, Oh, how did this happen? And it's like, yeah, accident in Rotterdam. She said, Oh, and I said, yeah, they, uh, they ran the red light. They hit us. She said, oh, okay. It was their fault. I said, yeah. She said, okay. <laughs> we got out of there as soon as we could. 
Wow. How <laughs> That was nuts. I got to ask, because Dr. Ner- how many people were in the band at that point when you were traveling in the van? That was like seven. Seven. We've wow. been like, yeah, seven or eight. You know, I think that was seven. Three-piece horn section, guitar, bass, drums, and vibes. Yeah, so that would have been seven. Yeah, Dr. Nerve's a big band. I, that's why I ask. Jeez. Yeah, Dr. Nerve's a big band. It's hard to tour. It was hard to tour. Um, took a lot of planning. But, um, you know, Europe back then... Um, European gigs, they would, um, you know, plus we were in a network of very friendly promoters that, that were into the music that we were making, but they would guarantee you, you know, you could negotiate a guaranteed fee. You, you could get a contract signed and you could have, uh, you know, hotel dinner and breakfast, um, you know, guaranteed. And, uh, and, 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 and they were honest, you know, and you would just go from gig to gig and you, you sort of figure out your budget and see what you can see, what you can afford. And, and you try to make your budget and you try to make it work. Um, you know, by contrast, like I was never able to tour the United States with my own band, like more Europeans saw my music live than, than people in my own country. Mm. It's, it's actually, you know, shocking. It's like a, it's a, a trade deficit. It's really a trade deficit. It's an artistic trade deficit. It's like they support us more than our country supports us. And uh, it's because they had support at every level. There'd be like, um, you know, there'd be the door and there'd be the bar, but then there'd also be like um, some city council funds maybe, or some st- state funds or some pr- province funds, or maybe they got some grant from the government, you know, like there's, people knew how to kind of like work the art support system. There's a, there was a commitment to the arts in, in Europe that would, uh, that would trickle down even to um, trickle down. It's not the right word, but um, that would, that would feed even the most out there, like some freaking squat in Bern, Switzerland, you know, like they have a little bit money. They can, they can bring Dr. Nerve and like do one show, but they're not going to do any more shows that month, but like they got Dr. Nerve there. It's so, um, like really passionate people hmm. that that reflects a lot of from what i've heard of from uh, other touring musicians um yeah. in comparison uh def- definitely they they say there's a lot more appreciation for the arts um in, in europe and elsewhere united yeah. united yeah. states is a whole different story man it is i mean and that only applies you know that certainly doesn't apply to the audience like you know yeah, yeah of course it it, it it it's just it's just like systematic systematic well yeah it really is systematic because it has to do with with funding and things like that yeah yeah um and even the way the the venues work and yeah man of course um that never with the fans or the music lovers themselves uh that's that's rarely the issue but well speaking of that i wanted to get your input on something because you know you mentioned like before you said something to the effect of that you were around uh you know you got to kind of see metal from the beginning um and and you know see see metal from the days of Alice Cooper and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and that sort of thing, all this talk of Alice Cooper because you know we are going to get to the fact you you did get to appear if I got this right on his 2018 album Supernatural on two tracks, Paranormal, Par- Paranormal. Paranormal. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Paranormal yeah. was the name of the album. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. I yeah. So I want to get to that, but let me start by saying this. I remember reading several years ago, I th- it might have been in Decibel, it was a long time ago, but it was an interview with Watain, uh, the kind of controversial uh, Swedish black metal band, and they uh-huh. said 
uh, something to the effect of they, you know, they aspired or maybe were inspired, uh, you know, some way by um, the early days of Alice Cooper. I guess they had read that Alice Cooper would spend a lot of his money on props and on the stage show rather than, you know, on his own indulgence or whatever. And you know, they might be living hand to mouth out of a van somewhere, but, you know, they had their makeup and their props and their stage show was crazy uh, in the early days. Um, that being said, I, you know, I know you from the last decade or so around St. Vitus and in the New York city, extreme metal scene, you're working vomit fist with your son, which we'll get to what parallels and what differences do you see yourself in, in like the, the, the early metal scene and the more modern extreme metal scene. You talked also about that, um, rock and opposition movement. And I thought maybe there would be some, some, maybe some parallels or, or some, uh, some things you could compare there too. Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. I've been trying to wrap my head around it myself. So this is this is a really good place to go. Like, um, like I, like I remember that the heaviest thing. Like, yeah, I, I, you know, there was no metal when I was a kid. You know, it didn't exist. It's not even like I hadn't been turned on to it. Like, it didn't exist. Like, like <laughs> a, a baby born today could listen to Brodekin, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure I would, but it's physically possible. The sound is in the world, you know, and, but that sound did not exist. And so, so I remember, um, I remember like hearing um, my, my parents had this big, freaking stereo magnavox stereo it's like from the era like late 50s early 60s when stereos were the size of you know refrigerators you yeah. know like big tube amps and and people were proud of the hi-fi sound you know and and they were in, in insane insane systems um and i remember flipping on i bought like um three dog night uh, it ain't easy. The live, the not the live record. Uh, it's an LP, and um, there's this tune. The first tune, first side, it's called "Woman," and it's this. Holy shit, man! I I I I, <laughs> I, can't, I will never forget. I don't know how young I was. I was young, but the sound of that coming out of that Magnavox with the freaking volume crank tube amp 15 inch woofers you know bass keyboard electric guitar drums like <sighs> raging out of that thing i, I, I couldn't believe it it's like never heard anything like that before in my life that was like the first metal you know everyone playing in a parallel maximum volume don't <laughs> know and uh and and then you know like very quickly and then I remember hearing uh, you know Jethro Tull Aqualung and never heard anything that angry in my life and some kid like flipped it on during uh, you know cupcake break in in seventh grade or something like that um, <laughs> in school and it's like oh what is that I I actually got like a shiver you know like can music be that angry like this is like grown up music this is like forbidden music what is this you know really it just so exciting and, and dangerous. Um, so, so like I knew, so I, I knew there was something out there. We didn't have, I didn't have the word heavy in my vocabulary, but there was, it was already like being defined. Right. And um, so, uh, 
so then like discovering the Aqualung record and like the fourth Zeppelin record and, um, you know, the first Crimson record and then like getting into early Sabbath and all that stuff. It was, it was, it was incredible. It, it, you know what? Yeah, honestly, this is like the, for me, this is like the, the great unanswered question of metal. It's like, why would a human nervous system freaking love that when we could not possibly have evolved with it? I don't get it. Mm. Like, you know, if, if you heard, if you and I were wired up like with some brain scan, right? And they played Into the Void with that opening guitar riff and then when the drums and bass comes in i'm sure like you would see like hormones just like just go flooding through our brains right like the whole nervous system responds when the when the bass and drums come in uh, on that riff it's it's like an indescribable pre-linguistic primal freaking thing but it could not have existed 15,000 20,000 like we didn't evolve with that why do we like it i don't get it i just <laughs> don't get it wow well when you put I, it but when anyway i was gonna go say when, when, sorry do you have an answer like answer the big un uh, uh, no what i is the i don't have it? an answer i was gonna say it, it kind of puts it in a different context because i was asking to compare like about 20 or 30 years difference in metal and you're talking <laughs> about going back thousands of years so i guess it, i guess it really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things well, I look, you might you might want to focus me back in again. I went a little off there. No, no, no. <laughs> I definitely it's, went a little off there. Well, but it's such it's such a good question. It's like, why would we be so excited about a sound that we could never have heard in our in our evolution? I don't get it. Well, but it's true. It, you, you, I think you are right, and there's something there too because when because like you're talking about rock based, you know, hard rock or early heavy metal when you talk about Black Sabbath. Yeah. Right, later right. on, we get into things like you know um, later era gore guts. Yeah, right, right, uh, and right. you know, like, like, oh. like, le legitimately, like, you yeah. know, dissonant technical death metal and all this right, crazy, right, right, crazy right. stuff. Well, so yeah. here's here's what I'm asking then: this rock and opposition movement that you spoke of right. before, and some of the things like that. Do you see parallels to that in today's underground scene? Yeah. Even though there's there's way more of a, I guess, a cultural appreciation. Even like you know, like we said in Europe, it's more. But I feel like gore guts nowadays at least get some respect from rock critics and things like that you know yeah right right yeah so thanks i i thanks for like pulling me back in i, I know you <laughs> like fishing you just reeled me back in you nice <laughs> <laughs> so so yes the answer is the parallel is really clear in my mind because i i right around like whatever it would have been like 78 79 i got into um very extreme and underground experimental rock, like the rock and opposition movement, this, this sort of DIY thing. And um, I really kind of lost track of metal. Like I, I wasn't really following it. Like I missed a lot of stuff in the eighties cause I was pursuing, it's like listening to, you know, art bears and gong and, and, you know, stuff in in a in a in a completely different scene um electronic music experimental music um 
And so I've always revered like a DIY extreme um, small audience, you know, like small fervent audience, small fervent philosophies, you know, people that are really into something um, and networking and, and like turning you onto this and turning onto that. And like, you know, trading cassettes with like a tune by this band, that band, that band, you just get turned onto this and turn onto that. It's so, so exciting. And I wasn't getting that from, I wasn't really paying attention to like mainstream metal or like what was really going on uh, very much um, in the eighties. I was really preoccupied with that. And it really wasn't until, um, uh, God, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I remember, I remember going to see, um, I remember going to see uh, uh, Testament and um, Unearth uh, in Sayreville with Leo, like around, I don't know when that was. I don't know exactly when that was, early 2000s, some, something. I could probably find the date. And, um, and, and, and the, uh, the reward of the night was this opening band called Lazarus A.D., it was just like, oh my God, these guys, it, it was, it was, it was, they were overwhelmingly great. And I'd never heard of them before. And they were just hanging out afterwards. You could just like go up and you could talk to them and like get their record and they'd sign your record. And you're like shooting the shit with them about amps. And like Dan Gappen was telling me about his amps. And it was like, I can't, this is, this is great. This is what I've been missing. Like, this is what I love about the extreme music scene and the, you know, the underground progressive and avant rock scene that I've been following for so many years. And here it is in metal. And then, you know, discovering St. Vitus and, and the whole scene around there. It's like, once, once you like open that door, a crack is suddenly like, Oh my God, it just, it just, it just blew the walls blew the walls open. Um, I got to thank, you know, my head, a friend, Carlin Holland, who, who turned me on to a lot of bands like around the Gorgut sphere and, um, and Colin, you know, um, Colin Marston. Did you know he was actually a student of mine at NYU? Didn't realize that. No. Yeah. So he, you know, he would turn me on to bands and you don't need a lot, you know, you just need like a few little references, like, there's a venue called St. Vitus and there's this band called Gorguts, you know, and here's a few others have fun. And, uh, and just, just from then on, it's like some of my most, most precious musical memories are, you know, over the last 10 years, like going to St. Vitus and seeing bands up close in this like super intimate, casual, just incredibly deep, uh, informal, underground way it's 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 fantastic well let me ask so, yeah go ahead I, I hope i made the connection because that is what you were asking right well yeah it is and i think this is still kind of like the question i just want to touch on this because this is kind of like on the same topic on the same question is <clears throat> um uh you know being in new york city having the background you do um not necessarily being involved in extreme metal your whole career through the 80s and 90s, but like you said, the last 10 years being really um, intimately involved with St. Vitus and, you know, you mentioned um, 
uh, Colin and and Carl Carlin, who's uh, somebody who's also been kind of behind the scenes and has provided yep. um, artwork and different you know things, uh, and and worked at at some of these venues. Um, would you say? Is it just me feeling like metal is special because I'm a metalhead, or is the underground metal scene in New York City um, kind of like the home of experimentation and um, and and kind of a fresh sound uh, nowadays, the way maybe other genres have been home to it in, in some way in the past? Well, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want um, to uh, go too big in, in my statements, but I can just tell you from a personal point of view, um, you know, when I, when I moved to New York and I was, um, I spent a year seeing everything at the experimental intermedia foundation with, you know, the most out there shit you can imagine, like amazing, uh, music performance art and like everything at the kitchen. And then I would go out to CBs and I would go out, like I would take in like the st- extreme range of stuff and um and 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 i would really really get uh satisfied by by having my mind blown like on a on a daily basis you know on a nightly basis going out and seeing seeing just extremely passionate experimental fresh challenging music and uh and and that's how I feel now when I go to St. Vitus or, you know, like the dearly departed Acheron or mm. like any no- number of venues that are active now where, um, you know, these underground DIY metal stuff goes on. It's like, it, it just feels so familiar and it feels so enriching. And you, you just, you can, you can go like expecting to see, you know, one band and then and then you see two others that you never heard of before and your mind is blown and that and it feels really close to um to these different periods of my life where i feel like super connected to uh a, a small dedicated fervent extreme scene and right now for me i got to agree with you you know like it, like the real exciting shit for me is is happening on the edges of metal that's that's hmm. what keeps me going you know keeps me going out to saint vitus uh, yeah not not the last couple of years but you know <laughs> well yeah obviously it, you know, <laughs> last couple of years everyone's just been putting out tons of stuff on Bandcamp. uh you yeah know. Yeah, but um, yeah. but yeah, that, that I appreciate that. Um, that's a great answer. Uh, a little bit, you know, out out from from a different perspective than my own too. And this yeah. would be a great time, I think, to to talk a little bit more about Vomit Fist. You've been very generous with your time, and of course, we got to get some conversation about Vomit Fist in there. That, of course. Um, for some of the listeners who are more from the extreme metal and current kind of death metal grindcore scene might be the, um, their their way of putting this interview in context. Maybe they weren't familiar with some of your other music. Uh, but you began the band Vomit Fist in about 2013, if I got that right, with your son, Leo, uh, on drums. And um, yeah. his friend Malcolm uh, joined quickly soon after as the singer. Um, yeah, of that yeah. band you've put out a rehearsal tape and two eps since then uh do you want to talk a little bit just about I, you know i'd like to get into the dynamic the father-son dynamic i know from 
um, other interviews you've done that uh, you've stated that the relationship is not at stake. In other words, when you're writing, there can be a very quick back and forth. I don't like this riff. I like that riff type of thing going on where no one's no one really gets hurt feelings, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm really grateful for that. Um, so I, I would really have to credit Leo for starting the band. I remember the moment he uh, he brought it up and um, it's not something I would have asked him. Uh, because as a parent, you don't want to like, you know, you never, sh- you know, you, like if he says yes, does he really want to? Is he just being, <laughs> you know, like a good, a good sport, you know? But he he brought it up to me, and and uh, I was like, yeah, you know, because I I already seen him drum. Obviously, um, he was in other bands, and and uh, he's just a, a killer, killer, killer drummer who I would like to play with no matter who he was, you know? So, um, so we, we developed, uh, we developed some tunes pretty quickly. We, um, you know, you mentioned having eight people in Dr. Nerf, like it was so refreshing to me to, to, to commit to a band that was like super spare, like guitar and drums, you know, and vocals, like how nimble, like we, you know, you can fit into a small car, you know, you could, you could like, get on the subway and do a gig it's it's so uh it's such an it's such an opposite experience to like you know the the dreadnought uh eight person band thing mm. so there was you know i was kind of appreciating that too but um yeah it, it, it was it was it's really cool because we 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 share um you know we share a lot of uh similar um tastes and uh and what I really appreciate is like when we disagree, or like the way the way it works out, like it'll just be this really merit based like argument. Like, I think, you know, I think this riff should come after this one, because then I can go from like this drum pattern to that drum pattern, then back to the other one. And that and that's something I couldn't have known ahead of time. It's like, oh, yeah. All right. Yeah cool yeah no i i see the way you see it now and 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 we'll arrange it that way and um and he's you know leo will also be you know very honest and and uh uh you know ruthless about like "Eh, i'm I'm not digging that you know or or like this would be better if we repeated it more or this would be less you know better if we repeated it less and uh, try doing something else or like throwing this idea so it it's a really um it's it's a really fertile and fast working relationship where uh i'll come up you know i'll come up with these riffs and i'll i'll throw them out and i'll i'll suggest um a song form and then uh we just like boom 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 like shoot back and forth and like whip it up into shape in in uh in in really really short order with yeah definitely no hurt feelings uh, like one of the one of the latest tunes that we worked on, I was actually pretty unsure about whether this um, whether it was enough. Like I had two or three riffs, and um, I was starting to get into this thing of like, well, let's do this thing four times and that thing eight times and this thing four times. And he just took it out. It's like, no, man, you're gonna do this like thirty two times, you know, and we're gonna do <laughs> this one like sixteen times, and like. And the vision that he had in the in his head, like it was all audience based. Like he said, like 
by the end of this tune, like by the end of these eight minutes, we're going to look out in the audience and everyone's just going to be standing there with their head going back and forth at this tempo, like, it's like, all right, that's what's driving you. It's like, you've convinced me, man. Sure. Let's do this, you know? And, and, and we actually did it the other night and, and that's exactly what people were doing. So his vision, you really trust Leo's vision, man. I, I really trust his vision. Awesome. So now I, that, that's a great segue right there too, because I've heard you talk in, about um, performing live with Vomit Fist. You've played some venues that people might associate with more of a um, you know short, fast, grindcore type of band like Vomit Fist, like house shows or DIY venues. Uh, I take it, and you know, you just talked about playing with the Fred Firth Guitar Quartet, playing more um, prestigious music festivals, playing venues yeah. in Europe where you were taken care of very well. Was this the first time in your life with Vomit Fist now where you're playing like kind of DIY, punkish, hardcore venues and things like that? Well, we, we, we played a lot of, um, like when you tour Europe, you, you play a lot of, like with Dr. Nerve, we've played a, a wide range of, uh, wide range of um, venues, like um, a lot of squats, um, you know, uh, World War II bunkers that are um, converted into clubs. Um, a lot of a lot of do not seriously diy um stuff as well as you know um you know uh supported art you know kinds of uh concert halls and things like that but um I never played in front of a uh uh never did like a like a basement show like you know with dr nerve or with fred frith you know like playing jesus christ man dude this <laughs> oh my god i remember doing this basement show in in new Paltz. so it's like this, this ceiling is like it's like six seven feet tall you know and there's like nails sticking out of the bottom you know like there's nails pointing down you know it's like this freaking death trap if anyone jumps you know up they're gonna like the head's going to stay, you know, in the ceiling <laughs> and, and there's nothing, there is nothing like playing a basement show with a bunch of freaking out of control, unsupervised metalheads in a small town, you know, Jesus, it, it, I, I, nothing, nothing, nothing compares to that. It's like, it, it's unbelievable. I, I'm so lucky i'm so lucky to be able to do that and um yeah i i just treasure that i absolutely treasure that i mean i i love equally playing the merce festival you know in front of thousands of people there's nothing quite like that but phew, there is nothing like playing for people that are like falling on you you know <laughs> uh it is it is as you know i mean all your listeners know this. This is not news. You know, this is this is not news to you or, or any any of the guys listening to you. I'm I'm just saying how how grateful I am to be able yeah. to do that. Yeah, uh, it's um, one of my favorite show experiences was in Delaware. My band Buckshot Facelift played many years ago in the uh, like a laundry room basement that's like the size barely the size of my bedroom. I mean, for, <laughs> for like twenty or thirty kids, it was it was ridiculous. But yeah. I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about, man. Was, you know, yeah, you're going to remember that all your life, right? Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. man. It's amazing. 
and so with uh, Vomit Fist now, you've put out two EPs um, in, independently. Uh, th- that would be the um, uh, Forgive But Avenge in 2014 and Omnicide in 2019. Are you currently yeah. working on anything new? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I came up, I, was, I worked on a bunch of stuff during lockdown and threw it all away. I just didn't dig it hmm. at all. Like we gave it our best shot, but there was just something not working about it. And then uh, just about two, three months ago, I like got into a completely different headspace about coming up with riffs. And, um, and, 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 there, and, and there was something about this magic. I sort of discovered like the two minute tune um and started writing these like slamming two minute tunes and uh rehearsing heavy with leo and just like crafting these tunes and so we're super excited about it we got we got a bunch of tunes written and um we're not quite ready to record yet because we you know we're still in the writing process but i'm super super stoked about this we did our first gig in years um the other night up in uh, in Beacon, and we committed to like doing all the new tunes. We, we didn't even have words for all of them, but we huh. just wanted to do them, you know. Nice. And uh, just to see how they worked, and and they 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 worked exactly how we wanted them to work. They, it just feels so good, man. So I'm I'm super stoked about the new stuff. Uh, it'll be a little while, you know. We still got got to get some more tunes together, but um, it's coming together pretty quick, honestly. Awesome, man. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's great that everybody's getting back out there and doing their thing now, man. Things are opening up a little bit, um, yeah. especially yeah. for, you know, for our fellow musicians. Um, and now now something, uh, like I said, you've been very generous with your time. Something I wanted to get in here that I did mention before um, was your appearance on that Alice Cooper album. It, it was, I'm sorry, it was Paranormal? Yeah. Yeah, Paran- yeah. I, I, I wrote the wrong thing in my notes. 2018 album, um Paranormal by Alice Cooper. If I got that right, that was where he actually got most of his original backing band back for that album. Yeah, 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 it's fantastic. That's not the first time that's happened. Um, so as you probably know, like Alice Cooper was the name of a band. It was all five guys um, for for the first, you know, six records or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then with Welcome to My Nightmare On, um, Alice became a solo act. But they, you know, despite the breakup, um, this is like a model for uh, for uh, like goodwill. It's just amazing. They they stayed friends. Like so so the the band the original band the surviving members would occasionally um, record on Alice's uh, solo projects. So um, Paranormal was exactly uh, was one of those examples, and so I, I think I hit. Dennis Dunaway's radar when I did a um, guitar arrangement of Titanic Overture, which is the first tune on Pretties for You. It's a pipe organ solo, um, and I just I just imitated the pipe organ with multiple layers of electric guitar and um, put that out on my Bandcamp just as a tribute to this crazy record that I love. I just you know as as you know I really like Pretties for You. So a, fr- a common friend of ours. Uh, turned Dennis on to uh, my version of Titanic Overture. And and um, then I don't remember exactly how it happened, but uh, Dennis had a 
Dennis has a band called Blue Coop with two of the um, Bouchard brothers from Blue Oyster Cult and hmm. himself on bass. And um, they invited me to sit in um, on a couple tunes on some of their some of their local uh, live shows. And uh, that went really well. And then Dennis asked me to play guitar on some of the demos that he was pitching uh, for the next Alice Cooper record. He just wanted to make them as strong as he could uh, to convince Alice and Ezrin um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to judge the tune fairly. You know, I, I don't mean to convince them, just, just to give the tune the best... Uh, best representation so um so he, dennis and i started this um sort of long distance you know collaboration where he would send me a demo and i would track guitars to it and he would say you know a little more of this needs a hook here how about this like needs a solo here and i would just we would just sort of go back and forth until he called it his phrase would be like grand slam it, it would have to be a grand slam like once once the tune was a grand slam, he's like, okay, this is ready. I'm ready to pitch this one. Then he, then we work on another one and work on another one. So one of the tunes I worked on was The Sound of A, which was a tune uh, that did actually date back to like 1968, apparently, um, mm. that Dennis remembers. But he thinks Alice wrote it and Alice thinks Dennis wrote it. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so and I, I really got into that tune and I got into their heads like I I did two tracks of guitar and I figured like what would Michael Bruce play at this section and what would Glenn Buxton play in this section and what kind of a solo would Glenn do here and like what I really like tried to conjure the vibe hmm. um it, it I, is it is a very I because I listened to it and it has a very kind of solemn uh yeah. old old sounding song like it sounds like a very kind of dark off song from the 60s um, yeah. not, not like, not like what people might think, like your typical Alice Cooper rock song would sound like. Right. Right. And that, and, and that's cause it is, it's like, it was written around the time of, uh, you know, like psych it's psychological, you know, like, um, very haunting. Like, ever, yeah. Haunting. Like, do you remember that? Do you ever see the prisoner with Patrick McGowan, that TV show from the sixties? I, I I know what you're talking about. Oh I, God, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. just check it out. Like, yeah. like psychologically weird, um, psychedelic, uh, you know, edge like fringe weird, you know, and and so it really fit into that into that realm. So he really liked my my performance on that, and then he, and he sent me a few more demos. So I I played on a tune called Fireball and a. a uh, another tune um, and uh, then something happened that I never would have expected I, I was you know daring to hope but uh, you know I, as far as I was concerned I was just helping Dennis out and, and it was an honor to work with him you know in one of my favorite contexts like Alice Cooper is super important to me so like I'm not going to say no like do I get to hmm. play guitar on Dennis's demos <laughs> hell yeah. yeah uh but then they dug the they dug my tracks so much that um they asked me f to send me their to send me the stems send them my stems so uh so i did and and my guitar playing ended up on the record which is just you know beyond beyond belief man if if i could like time travel to myself in high school and tell me 
tell myself, you know, there will be a day where you're going to play guitar on an Alice Cooper record. Hmm. I'd be like, get out of here. No way. Stop. Don't torture me. That's not possible. And uh, it just feels, you know, just so, so good. It just feels so good. Uh, that that's all yeah i had to ask about that man um you know because i i've you know not that i'm i'm a diehard alice cooper fan but i've always admired uh him for what he's done and i've liked some of his material over the years yeah, and it was interesting yeah. to go back and listen to those uh those songs that, that you worked on um uh today for for the research too like you said yeah. that that um uh sound of a song you know very kind of dark and not what people might expect too if they want to go yeah. back and check it out yeah Check out, check out the first, the first Alice Cooper record that I actually listened to and enjoyed after the whole, and, and that took decades. And I, I was dragged kicking and screaming to listen to this because I was so disappointed in his solo career was Brutal Planet. It, it is, it's awesome. It is a heavy freaking record. I think you might really like it. Like I, I, I listened to it like every day for a month when I when I got it. It's it's like super heavy, super catchy. It's it's a it's a heavy heavy record. It sounds great. It sounds nothing like any Alice Cooper earlier than that. It's it's a really weird outlier. Just a note to self, man. You might you might check that out sometime. I definitely because that's what that's kind of what I'm looking for too, man. Um, that what was the they, they did uh was it in Wayne's World they did that that song uh Be My Frankenstein Feed My Frankenstein Feed My yeah. yeah yeah that's yeah that's a good tune Brutal Planet is heavy it's okay. it's a heavy record it's, okay it, it's not it's not fun I'll, I'll, all right, I'll definitely give it a chance. I'll definitely give it a chance, man. I'm not going to go full Wayne's World on you with the Alice Cooper talk. Um, it's my. We got to remember, it's my generation too. But um, yeah. uh, Nick, you've been so kind. You've been so generous with your time. Um, uh, and before we wrap it up, obviously, I want to give you an opportunity to recommend and to plug and promote anything you got. But just for the listeners, quickly, um, because uh, because we are going to have to wrap it up in a little bit. If they if they're yeah. interested, they can always go to didkovsky.com that's d-i-d-k-o-v-s-k-y.com um yep. which is your website and also p-u-n-o-s music one word uh dot com punos music.com yeah. um if i pronounced it right that's your label that's right. where you release a lot of your music and that's got information on everything you've been doing, including uh, collaborations with um, Dylan DeLayla of, of Piron, New York-based yeah. uh, death metal band Piron. Uh, my yeah. former bandmate, Sam Smith, um, you've collaborated with quite a bit over the years, uh, yeah. including on the, the latest Vomit Fist record, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many more, like there's like, we just kind of basically skimmed and touched over a lot of things. Dark Ages with Tom Shad. Um, yes, and you, you and I actually got to. Coll- I appeared with you. Uh, also, big shout to Alex, Alex Cohen, my drummer friend. Um, several, several other people. Uh, uh, but Dark Ages with Tom Shad. Uh, yeah. We appeared on the the latest track last year. That was a great thing to collaborate on. So, just there was so much here. I'd have to have you on for five hours to cover it all. So, people are encouraged to go to did. Um, uh, like I said, uh, didkovsky.com um, and uh, 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 punosmusic.com for, um, yeah. well, you know, we'll link it up when, when this is posted online. Thanks but, a lot, man. So, like, punos, if you flip that word upside down, it's it's sound. Ah! <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> and the reason for that... Uh, quick sidebar is when i first moved back to new york and i went to all these shows at experimental intermedia foundation every time i walked into phil niblock's loft 
I saw this poster that said Punos and it took me a second to realize that it was a poster that said sound. And I said, you know, to a friend, a friend of mine and I said, like, if we ever do anything, if we ever like start a record label or do anything, I'm going to call it Punos music. And I kept that promise to myself. And you followed through and did it, man. <laughs> And and you've, you've you got quite a bit on that website for people to check out um, if they, if they want to peruse that and, and go through some of your um, older material and even um, you know like like I said before that um, uh, Fred Firth uh, guitar quartet you you guys put out the um, uh, Ayaya uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say Ayaya Moses Ayaya Moses in 1997 album and Upbeat in 1999 those are highly recommended amongst everything else there's so much here man. Upbeat um, is sick. But Upbeat I, is like a good starter. Like that's a good place to start. Yeah, really, especially, you know, for me, um, obviously I love death metal. I'm not going to say I don't, but, but you know, it's nice to yeah. get a, a little break every once in a while and listen to some different stuff, with which the research definitely provided me with today. Um, yeah. And on that note, I'm going to ask you the typical heavy hole question. Could you please recommend one older and one newer album, EP, release, whatever it is for um, us and the listeners? Could be any artist, metal or otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man, it's hard. Uh, so I, we, we already talked about Pretties for You, so I don't have to um, do that. But if, if you want it like a, a really out there, heavy uh, record, check out Winter Songs by Art Bears. So Art, A-R-T, Bears, B-E-A-R-S. And and they put out a number of records, but Winter Songs is, um, it's a full length and it's like r- radical, um, s- you know, uh, studio experiments, like really sonically, really interesting, um, very aggressive uh vocals um distorted guitar sometimes very clean guitar um trippy experimental music with fred frith on guitar and dagmar kraus on vocals and the incredible chris cutler um on drums so just do just just check it out like winter songs by Mm. art bears i've actually bought that record and handed it to friends (laughs) of mine (laughs) at saint vitus just like here just here, happy, you know, happy birthday. Listen to this and tell me how you like it. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm, if you wouldn't mind me just slipping another old one in, like, no, um, of course. Uh, there's a record called Touch by Morton Zabotnik, which is um, early electronic music, and it's like it's synthesizers, um, sort of right before people attached a keyboard to them and started playing them like, you know, melodic instruments and, you know, the way Emerson, Lake and Palmer did or, or whatever. It's like really sound oriented um, synthesizer composition by Morton Zabotnik. It's called touch. Uh, just like, you know, prepare yourself in whatever way you allegedly do when you want to listen to something. <laughs> Yes, yes. (laughs) And like put on some headphones and just carve out 40 minutes of your life to listen to touch, you know, and and tell me how you like it after afterwards. So that's that's like a couple of really old uh, things. And um, then uh, some some new stuff. Um, I I love this new record by uh, my friend Han Earl Park. He's a guitarist. 
he just released a record called Of Life Recombinant. Recombinant. Um, and uh, it's a really different record for him. It's it's uh, it's very, very slow form, stretched out guitar tones, uh, really beautiful, uh, very trippy, very, very strong. Um, and uh, and uh, a, a saxophone record called Corners by Catherine Sikora. Um, and just one last new one by a composer named John Bischoff, uh, who just released a record called Bitplicity, um, where he's making sounds um, on some homemade electronics where he's like using coins and stuff to short out circuits and, and, and making music by generating sounds with this kind of like shorted out glitchy uh, hmm. homemade electronics. It's uh, <laughs> really, it's, it's great. It's interesting. Like three completely different, you know, I, I, I was kind of searching around for something like new and heavy. It's like, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to recommend anything that you don't already know, or like your listeners already know. So I, I just wanted to do something that was, you know, way out on the fringes that you guys probably have not heard so that's why i chose these um the ones that i just did okay well i think you definitely did did that man um yeah i and the winter songs what a, what a uh recommendation you gave that i definitely want to check that out oh um, check that out the, check out the tune called the slave oh okay christ and and <laughs> so and Brutal Planet by Alice Cooper. I'm not going to leave yeah. that out too, man. You know the lit- yeah. yeah, it's not Gorguts. You know, it's not Gorguts, but it's like it's a good heavy record. The listeners know I have a soft spot for um, hard hard rock and heavy metal. Uh, you know that that doesn't necessarily delve into being extreme or whatever you want to say. You know, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I like yeah. I like my old school uh, Grim Reaper and whatever else you want to talk about but um but that's for that's that's for another time uh but but nick thank you so much for your time i appreciate it and um just for the listeners again they can go to didkovsky.com um and uh punosmusic.com we'll have those links in all the social media um dr nerve uh vomit fist uh we didn't even get to talk about cord dark ages it goes on and on um but thank you for every uh, all your contributions uh, to music which we've enjoyed and i enjoyed doing the research and for your time this evening oh well thank you man i it's really an honor i can't overstate that i i really appreciate your time and and everything that you're doing pleasure's all mine and um like i said we'll we'll, we'll be in touch in a week or two when this episode goes up sounds awesome awesome you, you have a great right, night man. nick Okay, thanks a lot to Nick Didkowski for telling us all about his story, including his band Vomit Fist with his son Leo. Shout out to him. Uh, look forward to maybe getting him on one day. We'll talk about it behind the scenes. Uh, another person that we're going to talk. Well, we're not, who's got? He's going to talk to us. Did he talk about us? Well, you know what? We've talked. We've talked with him before. But yeah. Now he's talking at us. Who's talking shit? Yo, heavy hole. This is Ralph from Haunted Hotel checking in on the voicemail. Uh, I just finished listening to the Eric Schnee interview, and at the end, 
uh, Will gave some props to the band Millhouse, and I just wanted to uh, add that Rachel from that band used to host the radio show Crucial Chaos on WNYU, which for me and a lot of my friends was a total game changer, man. That radio show really turned us on to a lot of killer music, man. So uh, just really, uh, really, really want to give Rachel some props and uh, put that out there, man, for those that don't know. All right, y'all. Hope everyone's all right. Later. All right, man. Thank you very much for the check-in there, tough guy. Uh, Ralph from Horner Hotel. Um, interesting to learn, too. Yeah, Rachel, I think she might have also been involved in Indecision. Not sure. But, yeah, um, Millhouse, a great band with people who all went on to be involved um, in in uh, uh, different respects of, uh, of the, the underground scene and the artistic scene in New York and New York City. Uh, very interesting NYU tie-in because there was some talk about New York City and, and uh, university there uh, in the Nick Didkowski interview. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about FM radio recently. So. Yeah, yeah. So there you go, man. FM radio, the original podcast. We all tie, it all ties in. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, also, yeah, Crucial Cast. I have heard of that, man. I think we're a little, we're like slightly out of NYU's range. If you, depending on where you're driving around, you can get it out by us here in Suffolk, Long Island. Yeah, uh, yeah. My buddy. No, it wasn't out of NYU. But, yeah, all those uh, Brooklyn schools, Manhattan schools and stuff, all their yeah. radio stations, like, kind of just cut off around Huntington. And, and, and you can't pick them up. What sucks is we you can get Stony Brook, but, again, we're a little bit far for Stony Brook, too, man. We're not yeah. really in a sweet spot for any um, uh, radio, any, like, you know, underground radio stations that I know of, man. Stony Brook's a little far out there, too. That's why Huntington invented... Joe Rogan and podcasts. That's <laughs> <laughs> Joe Rogan is not from Huntington. Let's get that out of the we way. We invented him. Huntington's we, own yeah. Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. We finally you know, somebody said it. You know, guys, I got a Billy Joel. All right. Because Bruce Billy Joel is kind of like, I mean, there's like an adjacency there between Joe Rogan and Billy Joel. I sure. Think. Yeah. It's like a personality type or something. I don't know. Like, you know, there's just a. Like you, you know, you guys know I've adapted this Jake Fifty Eight persona yeah. that I, you know, I just try to like adapt to, to to Long Island culture without sticking out. I just think it's a form of honesty that you're showing. I think it's, it's yeah, I think it's beautiful. It's yeah. it's, it's, I'm, beautiful it's like I'm shedding my cocoon and being a real Long Islander. I um I was I parked the Jeep uh, down at Cold Spring Harbor the other day and I was just making small talk with the locals as I as, as normal people yeah, do. Just, mm-hmm. And I told them that my name was Larry Lapari and I used to cut the beef uh, the boar's head at the, the the Cold Spring Harbor deli for Billy Joel's mother in the 80s. I was making shit up. I I don't know where I'm going with that. I am the stranger now. But if you use a term like Billy Joel, you gain a lot of trust off the bat with Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. Even I'm, though Joe Rogan has written way better songs than Billy Joel. <laughs> That's untrue, sir. Yeah. Billy Joel, one of the foremost progressive rock musicians of our time. You know, my father-in-law was just telling me he used to clean his piano. And Billy Joel used to... Uh, Are you sure? But then he could have just been telling you that the way I told people I was some guy named Larry who used to cut no, the deli I, meat. I, I'm actually a, they, Billy Joel's my uncle. They bit. have a, a, a fantastic home sweet home sign in their house that they got from Billy Joel (laughs) that he got from Billy Crystal. Wow. Wow. Okay. No, you can back this up. This, this actually traces. Yeah. They trace the Billies. Yeah. I can trace all the Billies back. Yeah. You're a good Billy tracer. My father-in-law has a nasty habit of not lying. 
Yeah. To make a story. He tells great stories. <laughs> yeah, all the time. yeah. Unlike all of Billy Joel's songs, which are lies. Well, they're all lies. <laughs> I, I wish my father in law, back when I was married, had told me a couple of nice little lies, man. That guy was brutal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> told me about myself quite a bit. Yeah, the guy, well, either way, he used to tell him about this piano he had, um, and you, you can't clean it. With any any product whatsoever, oh. it's probably a Steinway. You can't like clean that. it with anything. No, you have to use just a like the least moist cloth. Mm-hmm. So are you sure of, he wasn't? Are you sure like that. Billy Joel didn't vomit drunkenly on the piano and he was like, "No, you can't clean that." Like you can't clean anything. With Wait, you know? have you heard Anthony Greco's story about? No, Billy but we got to get Anthony on yeah. the show. I, I, I'm going to reach out. To yeah, him. read, read. Please reach out to Anthony, yeah. man. Yeah, it's he's it, the man. He has a great Billy Joel. It's story. fucked up that you would be reaching out to him. I've known that guy a long time. But yeah, reach out. He'd to be good to hear from. Well, reach on. out to Billy Joel. Get Everybody fucking loves him so Get much. Him Maybe Billy Joel will do the fucking show. Are you from a musical family, Billy? <laughs> <laughs> well, my mom thinks so. Billy uh, Joel. Uh, yeah. Uh, shout out to Ralph for calling in. Yeah, That's big good. shout out to Ralph. He didn't Glenn. say anything about Billy Joel, right? <laughs> uh, no, he, the guy's from the Yonkers. He's Getting calling so in, hot. talking about NYU, and we wound it back to Long Island and Billy Joel for you. Man, That's when, what we're good for over yeah, here. Yeah, we're a little selfish. When Billy Joel comes up in conversation, I just get so cheesed off, you know? I yeah. just get really, <laughs> just the cheese flows from every which way. One ounce! One and a half ounce hot mouth bucktail, handmade bucktail jigs from Fiskgood. Fiskgood at Fiskgood NY on Instagram, manufactured in Long Island, New York. Oh, we're back. That's good. It's at Fiskgood.net also out there. Uh, Billy Joel uses them. Yeah, message from our sponsor. Everybody loves him so fucking much. Nick did. Tom Petty's a little bit better, I think. Nick Nick Didkowski allegedly made a program uh, whereby you could. Uh, play these bucktail jigs, yeah, as as if they were chimes, yeah, electronically, yeah. No, that, that's we don't want to put that on him. But he did call in tonight. We appreciate all of his time. Nick Didkowski, uh, most recently a vomit fist and of all his other projects, like we talked about. Man, you can check all that stuff out. Please do. Uh, and the music he recommended. Big shout out to him. And like we said, his son Leo and the rest of Vomit Fist. Um, we hope to uh, catch them live sometime soon. Uh, coming to a town near you, man. Um, other than that, let's see. We got the Patreon. Got some little bonus mm-hmm. stuff up there. We got our friends at uh, the Fish Good. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin's back. That was that's nice. I do. Yeah, it's right? nice it's to nice, know where you are. Going. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm gonna be like as long as like guys. I love you. As long as it's the last time we talk about Billy Joel for a little bit. All right. I'm like I'm, here. I'm here. That's fine. There's other. I'll music. make you. I'll, I'm gonna make a deal. You stop talking Stone Temple Pilots. I'll stop bringing up Billy. It ends tonight. Okay. All right. I might, be, I might have been talking about Billie Eilish. I don't know. Billy Joel's still in the house. Tom, you, you good over there? Yeah, I'm fine. All right, I'm C, C, C Sharp? Programming? Hey, movies? guys, if you want to know something fun, it's fishing, really. <laughs> uh-huh. When Go you're on. writing C Sharp code, it's a high interpreting language that uses the .NET framework. Oh. Like fishing. Like, good, that's fishgood.net. You I'll can go, go to fishgood.net. I'll go jump off a bridge right now after saying that. That was <laughs> whoa, so whoa, fucking whoa. stupid. <laughs> well, Tom, if you uh, jump off a bridge, I will cast out one of these beautiful bucktail jigs and catch you right back up. Let's reel this whole thing in one. All right, that's good. Well, a little bit of the rails. 